back to box madness. Okay, I can't keep that going anymore. Holy cow. All right, gang. Yeah. Welcome back. We're doing it again. We're doing it again. Trying What's, to breathe. Trying to breathe. Both Nathan and David have some various form of ailment. Uh, it's not gonna, it's not going great. There's a lot of cold medicine yeah. involved in the making of this episode, but we will never miss a week. And so <laughs> here we are, addled and out of our minds, but, but here, here to bring you more of Kwame Nkrumah's neo-colonialism. Yes. Uh, that being said, my name is Nathan. My name's David. And David, what is going on in the world of current events since we last recorded? Oh, boy. Uh, well, it's been long enough, as actually I think it was right before the last recording, and I forgot to mention. Um, so we're in mid-December now recording this. Um, <clears throat> behind the curtain. Behind the curtain. Uh, Mid-December now. Probably be around around Christmas time when it, it comes out, or Festivus, or whatever whatever you got going on. Um, and um, November 24th, there was... Basically a pogrom, I mean, a terrible pogrom against basically where the Chinese population lives, uh, in the Solomon Islands, right? Um, we're talking a village burned down, three people killed, uh, basically supposedly stemming from diplomatic relations shipping, shifting from Taiwan to mainland China, uh, by the prime minister in 2019. Now the United States, of course, earmarked. Like specifically, the World Bank earmarked fifteen million dollars to the Solomon Islands uh, for "quote unquote" COVID relief right around the same time. Um, totally not suspicious. Suspicious. Totally not suspicious things. And um, of course, you know, incredible, like deadly, xenophobic attacks uh, started happening. So uh, that's terrifying. And of course, shows exactly what happens when you demonize a country. I mean, that's how you get you know, racist attacks is, is you say people from this other place are, are, you know, the source going to destroy our country or the source of evil. And, and you get racism towards anybody that hails, uh, from, from a nationality, uh, from that country or, you know, an ethnicity where people can just go, Oh, well, that's the same race, you know, in a very racist fashion, right. They don't even have to be from that country at all. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that's a very, very tragic event and we have to you know um be on the lookout for any forms of xenophobia with again that cranked up with the u.s and and any allies all around the world right now i mean this is how the united states operates right it's ruthless it's destructive um i mean we saw you know intimidation and, and burnings uh in the, the mosque a few years ago right um i mean the, the, this is what the united states does this is what the cia does this is what clandestine stuff does and so you're talking about you know possibly something very planned um and at the very least something where racism and, and xenophobia were fomented uh from bigotry uh that you know u.s empire has basically directly caused yep it's it is the same story over and over and over again, but it is when you can see it repeatedly play out in a same predictable pattern that makes the analysis useful. And that's, again, why we got to bring all of these things up to one support the people for whom is being you know ruthlessly programmed right now. And yeah. two, uh, to make sure you're able to identify these sorts of things when they pop up, what the root causes are uh, and and what the what the analysis should be to, to make sure you're able to, to see see these for what they are. Yes. Um, more recently, um, and something I think some people are, are a little bit savvy to uh, because it, it kind of hit a little close to home uh, last. I believe it was Friday night. Um, I believe we, so. Yes. 
Yeah, we, there was some uh, some tornadic weather. Um, I remember, you know, I mean, uh, we, we live in in, uh, in we don't disclose too much personal information, but everybody's aware that we live in the St. Louis area. I think the hockey podcast sessions of this uh, have, <laughs> has given that away a little bit. Um, so, you know, I mean, we saw some of the stuff, you know, firsthand that the, the terrifying tornadic weather that was coming through and it, it came through basically in two waves. And the first wave, the bigger wave, started hitting around Edwardsville, Illinois, right around the same time the second wave was was hitting us out here. And so, you know, I mean, as we're all watching, seeing how cautious we need to be about a tornado, and everybody has been notified about the weather for a couple hours and should have been able to accommodate as best you can, given tornadoes are a little unpredictable, um, accommodate as best you can. And... There was an Amazon distribution center in Edwardsville. And Friday night, this was eight something o'clock, mm-hmm. uh, workers were not allowed to go home knowing the weather on the way, even when their shifts were, were about to end because it's their busy season. Um, and people got trapped inside and several people were injured. I know at least seven died, uh, from the Amazon warehouse collapsing. That is not a natural disaster. That is Amazon killing people for greed. That is capitalism killing. Right. I mean, that's not even setting aside the broader, like, you know, that level of tornado happening in December, likely being factored into climate change and capitalism causing that. Because, again, you know, the the likelihood and the extremity of that tornado are, are, are spiked up from, you know, from climate change but even then we don't know it's not like you know even if the tornadoes are more intense and more often and more common uh especially the 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 scary uh winter ones tornadoes usually happen in the summer um and and they tend to be worse when they do happen in the winter you know even if those ones have all spiked up from climate change it's not like tornadoes never happen before climate change so we can't even say that 100 percent. although it makes those much more likely but we say for 100 percent that amazon had those workers there eight o'clock on a friday not allowed to go home from the, the weather disaster for profit. Profit was put before people once again, as it always is. Hell, that's the whole reason we're still in a pandemic right now. It's where we just reached 800,000 deaths, by the way, um, is because profit has been put before people time and time and time and time again. And this, you can directly see it. And, and the Amazon warehouse, I think, wasn't the only production center. I believe there was a candle factory in Tennessee or Kentucky. I, where, I think so, but I couldn't nail down the state. Yeah, I, I think, I think, and I think eight to ten people died there too. I'm pretty sure it was Kentucky. That that sounds more familiar. Um, but there was a candle factory, a candle factory working late on a Friday night. Like, that, why? Why did that even have to happen? Except greed. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Right. But um, you know, murder, Christmas, busy season, whatever. Lives don't matter when profit comes into play, and so that is capitalism killing people very, very, very directly. And there will be no consequence for it. Because again, when when you're doing it on a large enough level, there are no consequences for anything under capitalism. Yeah, I mean the only way the only way for consequences to happen is for people to band together and bring the consequences to people and with with direct action. You know, I mean that that's the only way it happened. That's why we organize. Yep. Right. Um and so, you know, we have to bring direct consequences to these companies or as Nathan says no consequences will happen. You know, I mean, that, that, that's the long and short of it. Yep. The system um, isn't designed for consequences. No, 
No, not well. It's designed for consequences for for the poor, for the working class. It is not designed those, for consequences for. Yeah, but for, those consequences assume assume fault too. Those aren't consequences. That's just reprimand. That's 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 just you know, um, um, miring in 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 misery because of greed that that's all that is yeah. uh but the cause of that n- there's no consequences it's not a system of consequences it never has it never will be okay. consequences have to come from the people banding together because that's the only avenue for it yep that being said anything else in current events for this week <laughs> <laughs> um well i I guarantee you there's more, but that's all I can think of. Now. <laughs> well, that's all we're going to cover then. Yeah. Uh, as is tradition, we are not a current event show. We're a show that reads books, uh, but we just jam some current events up top because sometimes they are important. Yes. Uh, that being said, we are picking back up with Nkrumah today with as monopoly of industry and commerce extended, the reliance upon banking capital also increased. New methods of production, the division of factories and businesses into departments, research into the possibilities of new materials and fresh ways of enjoying both old and new ones. All these, while they eventually reinforced monopoly and enlarged profits, called for capital sums that only the banks and their associates in the insurance world were able to provide. Thus, side by side with the process of amalgamation of industrial enterprises went the concentration of banks and their penetration into the large industrial and commercial enterprises to whose capital they heavily contributed. From middlemen originally performing the roles of simple money lenders, the banks grew into powerful monopolies, having at their command almost the whole means of production and of the sources of raw materials of the given country and in a number of countries. This transformation of numerous humble middlemen into a handful of monopolists represents one of the fundamental processes in the growth of capitalism into capitalist imperialism. This this should all sound familiar to anyone who's read imperialism or any of our longtime listeners. This is where Lenin talked about, you know, either primary or secondary or tertiary level um, control of the banks in all these businesses, right? They They have investors or they you know send out managers to advise or they're directly inheriting this company you know this is this is all stuff that lenin talked about in imperialism because again you know Nkrumah used that as a study and then saw that materially firsthand and that's why he went oh lenin's right and why i have to upgrade it and write this and we're definitely in that tying it back to imperialism section i'm also very happy that we've made it two paragraphs of that damn french name ha <laughs> A union was established between the industrialist and the banker, in which the latter dominated. In the USA, for instance, the United States Steel Corporation, which was an amalgamation of several giant steel firms controlling half the steel production of the country, was controlled by J.P. Morgan's banking interests because of the large investments they had in the industry. Before the end of the first decade of the present century, the intervolutions of industry and banking had already taken place to a high degree. In Germany, for instance, six of the biggest banks were represented by their directors in a total of some 750 companies engaged in the most diverse branches of industry, insurance, transport, heavy industry, shipping, restaurants, theaters, art, publishing, etc., Conversely, there sat on the boards of these six banks in 1910, 51 of the biggest industrialists, including Krupp, Iron and Steel Magnet, Armaments Manufacturer, and Director of the Powerful Hamburg American Shipping Line. Uh. Today, uh, the, this process has gone very much deeper and is spreading its roots more embracingly every day. 
The six German banks included the four giants, the Deutsche Bank, Dresdner Bank, Discounto Gesellschaft, Commerce Bank, Gesellschaft, I guess, uh, Commerce Bank, all of which have grown even more powerful. Allied with them today, as in 1910, are the big German industrial trusts and cartels, Krupp, AEG Bayer, Bondisch, Anlin, and Soda Fabric, Faberwerk Host, the last three components broken into which the great IG Farben was broken by the Allies at the end of the Second World War, the explosives and armaments manufacturers, and with the massive ICI and its continental affiliate Solvay. For example, the Deutsche Bank is now Germany's leading bank and is placed as 11th among the foremost in the world. In 1870, the Deutsche Bank had a capital of 15 million marks, which it had been able to increase to 200 million by 1908. In 1962, it disposed of funding amounting to 1,100 billions of old French francs. The rule of the financial oligarchy is maintained through the principal device of the holding company often established with a purely nominal capital, but controlling direct and indirect subsidiaries and affiliates utilizing vastly superior finances. Assuming that a 50% holding of the capital is sufficient to control a company, sometimes it can be and is considerably less, it is possible with an investment of, say, £100,000 to control tens of millions in subsidiary and interlocked enterprises. Yeah. This is all back to Lenin. Lenin described all of this in detail. This is more of a summary so far. Um, a good summary, but a summary of basically the, the underpinnings of what imperialism was. Uh, well, and, and it has to be, right? I mean, this is built on top of that, right? Yeah. So you lay the foundation and then you build up from there. Uh, concentrated in the hands of a few, finance capital exercises a virtual monopoly by reason of which it extracts enormous and ever-increasing profits from company flotations, share underwritings, debenture holdings, state loans, and bond issues. The Deutsche Bank, for instance, adopts a specific procedure for gaining control of enterprises and drawing in fresh profits. When participating in the launching of new ventures or extensions of already existing ones, it finds the whole of the required capital from its own and associated resources. When the formation is complete, the shares are unloaded at a premium, the bank holding just sufficient to give a commanding voice in the direction of affairs. At the same time, it takes profit on the original capital. Flotation of foreign loans provides us one of the highest yield yielding fields of monopolist profits. Usually, a borrowing country is lucky if it is get more than nine-tenths of the loan sum. Frequently, it is less, particularly if it's a developing country. Liberia's loans are revealing a classic example of how monopoly finance operates in conjunction with the governments to increase its profits. In Liberia in 1904, President Arthur Barclay reported that the English were 7% loan of 18... That the English 7% loan of 1871. Originally 100,000 pounds, of which only 27,000 pounds actually reached the Liberian treasury because of certain official defalcations, was the largest item of the country's indebtedness and would require three years' revenue to cover it. A desperate Liberian government succeeded in arranging an international loan of... $1.7 $1.7 million. This was subscribed by British, French, Dutch, and German banking houses associated with the United States financial institutions of J.P. Morgan, the National City Bank, First National Bank of New York, and Kun Leib and Company. 
In this instance, the most arbitrary means were used in applying and securing repayment of the loans. An American receiver general was appointed by the United States and sub-receivers by Britain, France, and Germany, an arrangement which continued until America took over full control of Liberia's finances during the First World War. Little actual cash went to the Liberian government, but fancy profits went to the banks and the loan issue houses. Bonds to the value of $715,000 were delivered in London, $225,000 in Germany, $460,000 in Amsterdam, $158,000 in New York to creditors of Liberia in payment of their outstanding claims. It required reparations money from the sale of German properties in Liberia to liquidate subsequent debts incurred and with the then British Bank of West Africa to try and meet the claims of this loan. So basically through loans, they just, you know, swallowed up and, and bought and you know, own the Liberian treasury. Yep. And it, it which is all by the books above board and, and the way it's supposed mm-hmm. to be. Yep. It was only after a new loan was negotiated with the Firestone Corporation of America in 1926 that the Liberian government was able to use $1.8 million to pay off the principal and accumulated interest on the 1912 loan. The loan offered by Firestone was in the region of $5 million at an interest rate of 7%, but by 1945, still only half this amount had been subscribed. Firestone's stipulations concluded that the abolition of the Office of the Receiver of Customs and its replacement by a financial advisor. So now, basically, you know, I mean, Firestone is just controlling the finances with its own financial advisor. Just out and out ridiculous stuff. Uh, it was under pressure of these debts that Liberia was obliged to seize large concessions of, for tubber planting to Firestone and later to the Goodrich Rubber Company. One of the principal functions of finance capital is the issue of securities on which the discount rates are ridiculously high. It is also an important method of consolidating uh, of consolidating fi- financial oligarchy. In boom periods, the profits are immense. During periods of depression, the banks acquire holdings by buying up small or failing businesses or engage in the reorganization at a profit. Money is made by the banks at the, and the sphere of control is extended. Financial assistance to land speculators is extended. Financial assistance to land speculators speculators is also a means of entrenching control and inflating profits in times of industrial expansion. Ground rent monopoly merges with communications monopoly since an important factor in governing rise in land prices is also good means of communication with town centers. So basically they're they're owning everything, right? They buy up, they loan to the industry and then the, the, the industry loans fail, they loan to the country and then when the country loans fail, they just engulf the country's finances and then they, they you know, uh, have the industries and the country in hand, and they just buy up the land, right? And so now they have the land securely to handle the booms and the busts of capitalism and swallow up any small competitors because they control the land and they just rent it out to small competitors who, when they fuck up, they can just swallow them up. And then just for good measure, so that they can be in charge of the communication to handle all this, they just buy up the communications. It's, it is a very systemic process and it it's it is seen everywhere it is yeah in his book monopoly a study of british monopoly capitalism published in 1955 by lawrence and wishart sam aronovich has shown how the financial resources of britain have become concentrated in the hands of a small number of big banks and financial institutions between them, the big five banks exercised immense power. In 1951, their 147 directors held 1,008 directorships, of which 299, just under a third, were in other financial institutions. 
Of these, 299, 85 in, were in other banks and discount companies, 117 were in insurance companies, and 97 in investment trusts and finance companies. Talk about centralization, wrote Karl Marx in Capital, Volume 3, Chapter 33. The credit system, which has its entire center in the so-called national banks and the great money lenders and usurers about them, is an enormous centralization and gives to this class of parasites a fabulous power to interfere with actual production in a most dangerous manner. And this gang knows nothing about production and has nothing to do with it. Hegemony of the money institutions over industry is assured by the vast reserves built out up out of the various ways in which and by which capital is advanced to an industry at high profit and drawn from it through holding companies and interlocking directorates. This process emphasizes the separation of finance capital from industrial capital. When this separation has attained major proportions and the domination of finance capital has become supreme, the stage of imperialism has been reached. This stage can be said to have been brought to maturity at the turn of the century. So we get it. Kwame Nkrumah, you read all of Marx's Capital. You're you're so good. We've only got through, no, we only got through volume one. Whatever. Look at you, Mister Fancy Pants. <laughs> From free competition, the fundamental characteristic of its early stages, capitalism at its highest stage has polarized into monopoly expressed in syndicates, trusts, and cartels, with which the capital of a small number of banks has merged. The trusts and cartels have assumed an international character and divided up the world among themselves. Monopoly extends to the control of raw materials and markets, for the possession of which highly developed capitalism engages in an even more intense struggle. At its imperialist stage, finance capital's primary need is to find spheres of overseas investment which will return profits at a greater rate than can be obtained at home. The export of capital, therefore, becomes the dynamo of imperialism, which turns the export of commodities and leads to the capture of colonies as the means of assuring monopolist control. Upon this economic process is built the political ideology, the non-economic superstructure that infuses the battle for colonial conquest. Hilferding expressed this ideology in a single, concise sentence. Finance capital does not want liberty. It wants domination. Possession of colonies gives a guarantee to the financial oligarchy of the owning country of the monopoly of actual and potential sources of raw materials and outlets for manufactured goods. And that is the end of Chapter 5. Yes. Moving us moving us through uh, a very good recap of of Lenin's imperialism. And at the very end, it cites Lenin's imperialism. So it, we, we, we know where it came from. It does. Uh, that was for the asterisk that was a couple pages back um, where it was talking about, you know, the monopolies leading to imperialism. But yeah, he does actually cite that in the chapter. He also, of course, cites Marx. He cites a couple of the works that Lenin cited himself. And we basically get a recap of Lenin's imperialism. I mean, we get exactly what was in there applied to Africa directly with current examples. Yep. So moving through to chapter six, primary resources and foreign interests. American and European companies connected with the world's most powerful banking and financial institutions are, with the consent of African governments, entering upon major projects designed to exploit new sources of primary products. 
In some cases, these are aligned to long-term ventures for the establishment of certain essential industries. In the main, however, they are confining themselves to the production of materials in the basic or secondary stages, with the object of transforming them in the mills and plants owned and run by the exploiting companies in the metropolitan lands. Africa has failed to make much headway on the road to purposeful industrial development because her natural resources have not been employed for that end, but have been used for the greater development of the Western world. This has been a continuing process that has gained tremendous momentum in recent years, following the invention and introduction of new processes and techniques that have quickened the output of both the ferrous and non-ferrous metal industries of Europe and America in order to keep pace with the ever-increasing demand for finished goods. Military preparations and nuclear expansion have had a considerable impact upon this demand. World output of crude steel almost doubled itself in the decade between 1950 and 60, from 190 million tons to 340 million tons. Even the regression of 1958, which lasted through the following years, failed to halt the progress, which went on in lesser degree in both eastern and western countries. The general forecast is that the tempo of production will be maintained as it comes from Western sources. It makes little allowance for expansion of Africa, use of the primary products, and envisage a continuance of the present flow as, has, as between developing source countries and highly industrialized users. Nor does it take into account the likelihood of a repressive tendency in Western economies that can certainly affect the demand of raw materials. A publication of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe in 1959 estimated that the world production of steel between 1972 and 75 will be in the region of 630 million tons. Before the last war, most of Western Europe of the Western world's iron and steel output was based upon local raw materials. The post-war years, particularly since 1956, have seen an opposite trend. Something like a quarter of the raw materials, 90 million tons of the 400 million, used in the world's metallurgical industries have been imported. David, do you want to take over? Yeah. Uh, the countries mainly importing these raw materials are the United States, Western Europe, and Japan. I really genuinely appreciate Nkrumah just making Western Europe a country. Like, fuck it. They don't get differences anymore. <laughs> no. They're Western Europe. Uh, <laughs> <coughs> <coughs> okay, breathe, David. Uh, the Soviet Union and the developing countries have at their disposal sufficient quantities of domestic raw materials. At the present time, three large areas of primary resources are being exploited for the benefit of the great producer countries. These are Africa, Canada, and South America. In particular, Chile and Peru, and lately Venezuela. Canada has become a province of American capital investment, which draws off high profits and exploits the vast sources of raw products for, con for conversion in American plants. You don't say. That's a really good rundown of Canada. It's just America's like other rich asshole. Um, uh -huh. South America and Africa, besides offering these advantages, provide cheap labor and local governmental assistance by way of duty exemption for imported machinery and equipment as well as tax remission. Surveys now being carried out in Africa are discovering more and more deposits of valuable raw materials. Western investigators regard them essentially as resources of exploitation for the commerce and industry of their world, ignoring completely the development of the countries in which they lie. Robert Sonnell, in an article in Europe, in, in Europe, parenthesis France, 
I see you can't decide if Western <laughs> Europe's a country or not. Uh, Outremer of November 1961 surveys the possibilities of Africa as a provider of ferrous raw materials for the industries of great metallurgica countries. He reminds his readers that there are sources of these primary materials in Europe, such as Sweden and Spain, and that for Japan, there are the countries of Asia and Oceania. He concludes that European participation is a very is a favorable factor in starting off the exploitation of Africa's mineral resources, but that the new productive capacities in course of development should counsel prudence and a detailed examination of the selling possibilities. These mines are bound to start off in a situation of lively competition, which must have its effect upon price levels. They need, therefore, to be subjected to the close preliminary examination examination before being embarked upon and must depend upon agreement between the exploiting companies and the host states, which will give the former a just turn and the latter a stable fiscal regime for the functioning of the harmonized exploitation. So basically like, hey, be careful when you go to invest in this stuff, not for, you know, the effects on the environment or the people there or any of that shit. We don't we don't care about any of that. But, you know, just be careful that we're like coordinating this and fixing prices. Just, mm-hmm. just have each other's back. In short, the governments of the new states are are seen in the role of policemen for the banking and industrial consortia, bent upon continuing the old imperialist pattern in Western Africa relationships. The stable fiscal regime they will guarantee out of such exploitation will, according to Robert Sonnell, be based on conditions of depressed prices arising from acute competition. There has been a considerable increase in the production of primary materials in Africa since 1945. Under the stimulus of post-war rebuilding needs throughout the world and the extingencies of Cold War stockpiling and armaments requirements, another driving factor has been the revolution in productive methods and management. The surge of colonial peoples towards independence must also be acknowledged as a force contributing to the extension of raw material production. In some cases, the production of primary materials since 1945 has multiplied several times, and in most cases has doubled. The scene in Guinea shows much change following the discovery of deposits of iron and bauxite. Diamond mining has also made noticeable progress. The Ivory Coast in 1960 was producing diamonds at an annual level of 200,000 carats in starting manganese fields in the neighborhood of Grand Lahau. The mining of iron ore is underway in Martania, where Anglo-French Consortium is planning to produce 4 million tons at first stage and to be increased later to 6 million tons annually. Deposits are estimated at around 115 million tons of 63% iron grade. Finds of friendly rich phosphate deposits in Senegal have brought a French-Belgian financial bought a French beds and financial and mining combination into the country to carry out their exploitation. An estimated 40 million tons of raw phosphates are expected to allow a production of 13 million tons of rich phosphates through the extraction of 600,000 tons of concentrates annually for 20 years. Tons and tons and tons and tons of phosphates. Which I only know is a bubbly drink that my parents had in the 50s. Soda fountain. <laughs> nice. Oh. Phosphates have also been found in Togo, which are to be exploited by a consortium associated with the Banque de Paris as de by Paz, Paz, yes, and established mining companies having connections with the Société Générale de la Belgique. Manganese, uranium, oil, and iron ore finds in Gabon have brought in similar consortia for their exploitation. 
Cameroon produces little from mining beyond some small amounts of gold, tin, and rust rutile. Though there have been no effective changes in Madagascar's position, there have been discoveries of uranium, monzonite, zirconium, chromium, and other minerals whose exploitation is being investigated. Iron ore finds in Algeria are estimated at 100 million tons, and we have been hearing a good deal lately about the oil and gas resources of the Sahara Desert. Algeria's fields are now producing at the rate of 450,000 barrels a day, about a third of those of Iran, and Libya has reached 150,000 barrels daily, with the anticipation of achieving 600,000 barrels a day within the next five years. In Algeria's sector of the Sahara, finds, finds of minerals at Tindouf are expected to produce 90% iron. I do really follow- appreciate you taking over the reading just as the French names were turning. Yeah, you you, I see where the coughing fit came in. <laughs> the following figures taken from UN statistical yearbooks illustrate the great rise in output of minerals in Africa in the post-war period. Uh, they went up. That's what the chart says. The chart says they went up. Charts, charts and graphs and graphs and charts. The highest rate of increase is in South Africa, where a production of 624,108 kilograms of gold makes the republic the producer of half the world's supply. An output of 2,838,000 carats of diamonds in 1959, about 40% of which were gemstones, puts it third after the Congo and Ghana whose output is almost entirely of industrial diamonds. Though the value received because of its controls of the industry and the number of gem diamonds is relatively greater than that of Ghana's, she also leads in the production of chromium ore and is second in the output of lead from southwest Africa. Even South Africa's uranium production of 7,000 tons obtained largely from gold and copper slimes is way ahead of the Congo's 1,761 tons. Do gold and copper come in slimes? I didn't. Apparently, know was... everything comes in slime nowadays, David. I My, did not I have, know that was a thing. I have a young child. They, I've, I've watched YouTube videos of people making slime. Apparently, you take some copper slime, and man, you got uranium. I, I just, I, I don't understand no, science. I had no idea we ninja turtled precious metals. That's a, uh, it, it is a thing. Mining of all kinds in South Africa has reached a stage of exploitation which can be compared with that of Canada, and which is now feverishly beginning to open up in Australia, where the same companies in alliance with American and other associated interests are paramount. The close relationship is borne out even in the names of mines, particularly in Canada, which frequently duplicate those to be found in South Africa and the Rhodesias. Africa's possession of industrial raw materials could, if used for her own development, place her among the most modernized continents of the world without recourse to outside sources. Iron ore, mostly of high quality, is to be found in gigantic quantities near to the coast where it can be easily shipped abroad. As for bauxite, Africa's estimated reserves are more than two-fifths those of the whole world. They are twice those of Australia, which are placed second. Guinea alone is estimated to contain deposits equal to those of the whole of Australia. That is over a thousand million tons. Ghana is said to have reserves totaling 400 million tons. Sudan, Cameroon, Congo, and Malawi are other known sources of considerable deposits, and the investigation of probable reserves is proceeding in Mozambique, Sierra Leone, Portuguese Guinea, and in other parts of Africa. Among the base materials essential for the production of iron and steel, manganese has a place of high importance. Besides being used for alloying with pig iron and the manufacture of special steels, it is used in the chemical industry. For certain purposes, under present-day processes, manganese is irreplaceable. It is in constant use at the rate of 18 to 20 kilograms to a ton of steel. 
the Soviet Union and China are practically self-sufficient in the supply of this essential base material. The other great world steel producers, the United States, Western Europe, and Japan, do not have appreciable quantities in their own territories. Their principal sources of supply are Africa, India, and Brazil. Of these, Africa provides the greatest quantity. Angola, Bacano land, yeah, Congo, uh. Ghana, Morocco, Rhodesia, Southwest Africa, and Egypt have among the producing country have been among the producing countries for some time. Others like the Ivory Coast and Gabon are now being added to the list. So basically, the the large socialist powers were self sustaining in metallurgical ores, and everybody else just exploited the global south. Yeah, as you do. Yeah, as you do. Yeah, as you do. North Africa is the world's greatest producer of phosphates. Morocco alone exports 7 million tons out of some 9 million tons coming from North Africa. The USA comes next with an export of 4 million tons. New producing countries which have appeared since 1957 are China with some 600,000 tons in 1960 and North Vietnam with 500,000 tons. Senegal is a producer of aluminum phosphate, her output being about 90,000 tons a year, and Togo is now appearing on the phosphate market. Iron ore, like oil, has become one of the more recent mineral discoveries in Africa, North and West Africa being the main centers. Among the high-grade ore producers in 1960 were Liberia, 68% iron content, Angola, 65%, South Africa, 62%, Sierra Leone, 60%, Morocco, 60%, and Rhodesia, 55%. The minimum iron content for high-grade ore. There have been discoveries of higher quantities and quality since 1960. It is considered that most countries in Western Africa, from, the, from Maritina to Congo, Brazzaville, have iron ore deposits. Enlargement of the production in Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra Leone is being planned. Deposits are either being placed under production or are planned for exploitation in Nigeria, Niger, Maritina, Ghana, Gabon, Cameroon, Senegal, and Congo, Brazzaville. Ghana's reserves, estimated at, one, at about a million tons, are in the shine area of the northern region and not easily accept, accessible, and have an average iron content of 50, 46 to 51%. It is proposed to exploit the deposits for domestic use when the Volta Lake is open up for inland transport. The Niger Republic deposits are estimated at more than 100 million tons of 45 to 60% quality. They are at, say, about 35 miles from Niamey, at the, mo- at the moment distant from roads, railways, and ports. These disadvantages affect also the exploitation of the known deposits in the Kandy region of Dahomey, at six- of 68% quality. Algeria has been an iron ore producer for some time. Exploitation was undertaken there in 1913 by a French enterprise known as La Saite de Lounza, operating at Dejbal Uzuna in the south of Constantine, close to the Tunisian border, formally incorporated as a department of France. The company has built its own railway lines, connecting it to two producing centers, to Ode Cabret, to join with the Bone Tabeza line. It plants its plants enable Societe de la Uzuna to export iron principally to Great Britain, Germany, Italy, Belgium, and the Low Countries and the USA. Decide if you're just gonna call them Western Europe or not. <laughs> Come on, Nkrumah, I believe in you. Between I, the I outset like that of the there's just the low countries too. Like, yeah, you know, the other Europe stuff. No, I uh and the end of nineteen sixty, a total of forty six million tons of mineral has been extracted. Ozuna's personal then Included personnel then included 600 Europeans and 1,500 Algerians. 
Yeah, so, I mean, basically, these iron deposits are, are everywhere, and it's just exploit, 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 exploit. Uh, the existence of iron ore in the Sahara was first indicated in the Gara de Jeblit region, some 110 miles southeast of Tindouf, in 1952. Difficulties of situation and water supply are obstacles in the way of exploitation. Nevertheless, a committee composed of representatives of the iron and steel industries of France, Belgium, Germany, Italy, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands is busily investigating the possibilities in conjunction with the French Bureau d'Investments. Yeah. Oh, d'Investments in Africa. Yeah, sorry, that was Ah, a different page. Yes. Um, or in Afrique. I, I don't fucking know French. Um, Liberia's iron ore resources are uh, reputed to stand at one, a thousand million or a billion tons in the Nimba range and 600 million tons in the deposits near Sierra Leone border. The Nimba iron ore mine, which has been sunk and is being mined by a consortium known as Lamco Joint Venture Enterprises, members of the consortium being Liberian American Swedish Mineral Company and Bethlehem Steel Corporation, has is estimated to have reserves of over 300 million tons of high-grade hematite ore with an average iron content of over 65%. Long-term contracts are in hand from German, French, Italian, and Belgian steelworks, while a considerable part of the output will go to the powerful United States Bethlehem Steel, which has 25% participation in the venture, and the other 75% being taken up by Lamco. Lamco is set to be a company shared between the Liberian government and foreign enterprises on a 50-50 basis. The non-government participation is Liberian Iron Ore Company, a consortium of American and Swedish financial interests. So, okay, you know, the profits are split between a company and a company that's split between the company and the government, which is just a bunch of companies. It's just going to corporations. Mm-hmm. Chief of these is the Swedish mining company, Grangseberg, which, besides having an important stake in the Lamco Nimba mine, acts as managing agent for this joint venture, in which American capital predominates. So, basically, it's mostly American money and Swedish administration, and, and you know, the Liberian government's just kind of there, for show. Uh, Grangesberg, formerly holding 12 out of 28 of the Lamco Syndicate, according to its annual report, adopted at its annual general meeting held at Stockholm in May 19... 19- 1962, increased its participation to 15 out of 28, giving it a majority slice of the equity. <laughs> Grangesberg owns iron ore mines in central Sweden, as well as power stations, forest and farm properties. It also built and controls the Frovi Ludvigs Jarnvag Railway, undertaken... Again, I'm doing my best to read Swedish, man. I, there's too many languages. Uh, and operates in the Oxelsund Ironworks, turning out pig iron and heavy plates. In addition, it possesses and runs a fleet of ships, which at the end of 1961 comprised 33 vessels and had on order another four for delivery in 1962 and 1963. A subsidiary... I... Oh, my God. Good luck! Octai Hematite works... God, fucking Swedish. Works mines in North Africa... And others include arms and chemical enterprises. Aktai Balagit Express Dynamit. Uh, the Swedish government took over holdings, which Grangesberg exercised. Oh, fuck. In. <laughs> 
Lucavara Karunavara, aka El Cab. But out of purchase price of KR, that just sounds like you like you got drunk and said A cab at the end of that sentence for no reason. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's A B L K A B. It's like the shortened version of Lucivara Akernava. I don't know. Uh, but out of the purchase price of, I guess KR is some kind of Swedish domination. I think, Kron- I think Kroner. Okay, Kroner of Kroner nine hundred twenty-five million. 925 million kroner it received. The company reinvested 100 million kroner in LKAB. The value given to these government purchased holdings was almost twice as much as Grangishberg's fully paid up capital of 495 billion kroner. And even without them, its assets at the end of 1961 stood at 403 billion, no, million, sorry, 403.7 million kroner, in addition to its shares in subsidiary and other companies totaling. 154 million kroner, oh, shares and companies totaling 154 million kroner. The company's net profit for the year was 38 million kroner, and dividends absorbed nearly the same amount at 35 million kroner. Its iron sales increased from 1.6 million tons in 1959 to 2.5 million tons in 1961. Bethlehem Steel is a heavy investment sphere for Rockefeller's profits from the standard oil. Never forget about Rockefeller and its sleazeball giant absorption um, of everything, which has been the pushing to displace British Dutch oil interests in the Far East. John D. Rockefeller III has made himself a specialist on the Far East. Always good to hear. Nothing like the super richest fucking super rich guy in human history making himself an, a specialist in half of the globe that he doesn't belong to. With a preference for Japan, where he was a member of John Foster Dulles's peace treaty mission <laughs> in 1951. Hey, we got to John Foster Dulles, ladies and gentlemen. Da 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 da. Oh, the CIA just had to show their show their yeah, ugly faces. They? they just they never stop. They never stop. So we got we got the Rockefellers and the CIA. Um, on a peace treaty mission in 1951 to Japan, he established the Japan Society, Inc. for cultural interchange. Persistent visits and pressure have boosted standard oil company facilities in Japan, Indonesia, New Guinea, and India in oil production, refining, and sales. The Rockefeller interest in Japan is reflected in the link with the Sumitomo Metallurgical Group, which has been cemented in the Bethlehem Copper Corporation Limited. In 1955, British Columbia registration property claims in the highland valley of british columbia hold ore reserves of 3.3 million tons grade 1 to 20 percent copper and 2.7 million tons of 0.82 percent grade additionally claims are held in the in the provinces as well as the full subsidiary highland valley smelting and refining Total output is to go to Sumitomo Metal Mining Company Limited Group, which is responsible for bringing the property into production. It has brought 400,000 shares in Bethlehem and has options on further lots in the connection with the loan promises of $5 million and an agreement to contribute one half of the funds required for expansion. Sumitomo provides Bethlehem's vice president and two other directors, one of whom is from the provident Tanaka family. 
The first deliveries from the Nimba mine were made during May 1963 production of 7.5 million tons as planned for 1965. So, again, you know, West Africa is colonized by John D. Rockefeller through CIA-coordinated Japan Enterprise links. Like, yeah. the least shocking thing of all time, but it's just amazing to hear it, like, documented well and spelled out. There, yeah, it's insane. The Nimba iron ore streaks of Liberia stretch into Guinea, where pro- prospecting is taking place in the Nimba Simbadu region, about a thousand kilometers from K- Conakry, sorry, Conakry, close to the Liberia Ivory Coast borders. A Western European banking group representing itself as the Consortium European pour le Development des Ressources Naturelles de l'Afrique, Cons Africa, is undertaking investigations by contract with the Guinea government the group comprises. Banque de la Indochine, Paris, Deutsche Bank AG, Frankfurt, Maine. Hambro's Bank, London, Nederlandsch, Handel, Machpee, Amsterdam, Society de la Brussels, Pour la Finance, et la Industrie, Brofina, Brussels, SA Auxiliary de Finance, et de Commerce, Affixi in Brussels, Campaign Franco American de Metaux, de Minerais, Comfret in Paris. Good Lord. The bank yeah, ba- basically seven, seven of the 10 to 15 biggest banks in Europe. Yeah. The Bank de la Indochine is closely associated with the Bank de Paris at Des Pazpe and has links with the Société Générale del Belgique. Its original spheres of operations have been largely closed by its exclusion from North Vietnam because of the socialist regime established there. On South Vietnam, it has now become subordinate to American finance. The Bank de la Indochine, which already had a foothold in Algeria, is turning more and more to Africa, where it is grouped in several consortia, usually surrounding the interests connected with the Société Générale de Belgique, the Bank de Paris de Paribas, and the Deutsche Bank, all leagued with Morgan international interests. The Bank de la Indochine is represented on the board of Le Nickel, which exploits a variety of minerals in Asia and Oceania and has a substantial interest in Campagne Francais de Minerais de la Uranium. The late H. Robier was another director on Le Nickel's board, as well as J. Puyari from Penaroya and Le Mines de Huron from former president... Who, oh, from Penora and Le Mines de Huron, whose former president was the late H. Lafond of the Banque de la Paris et des Pays Bays. These and other allied French and American interests grouped around the Societe de Minerais at Metal, Patino, and American Metal Climax form the combination known as Comfort, several of whom have received several of whom received Marshall Plan credits in the post-war years. I am done reading foreign names. That is it for the week. <laughs> Too many Good goddamn God. French names. I said this Too last time. Too many goddamn French names. But the important thing is all of these banks of Europe are connected uh, specifically back to... Where was the uh, American bank that was part of it this time? It was... Morgan, wasn't it? Morgan, and that's it. Yeah, J.P. Morgan uh, in a, a major conglomerate that's upheld by the Marshall Plan. So this is very reflective of what we've been reading for a couple episodes here, right? The Marshall Plan wasn't just aid to Europe to make a block and... and try to like you know stamp out the rise of, of communism it was also basically the united states establishing itself as an empire by 
controlling every other company's banks as subsidiaries and taking over all the colonial holdings, right, as, as, as a loan for aid. So it's, it was just basically to make sure that the United States stood atop an empire and made sure that, that the colonial countries kept their place in order to be the United States' other colonial power underlings. Yeah. And that all being said... This has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. There are a number of different ways that you can reach out to us if you would like to get in contact with us. First of which is you can get us uh, through email. Our email address is marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Uh, the next way you can get a hold of us is on Twitter, uh, where we occasionally dip our toe on the hell site just to make sure everything's still, you know, moving along as awfully as it seems to be. Uh, our Twitter handle is at marksmadnesspod. Uh, DMs are open if you need to get us in there for any reason. Um, last but not least, uh, you can get to us through Discord, which is the more day-to-day, conversational, hangout, enjoy time with other comrades and ask questions or or talk about Final Fantasy XIV because, you know, we talk about that a lot. Uh, that being said, you can get us uh, through Discord through our Twitter bio. Link is in there. Um, or you can email us and request the link and we will send it to you that way. Uh, that all being said, David, it's time for a disclaimer. Yeah. So basically, uh, when me and Nathan started this, Nathan came up to me and was like, Hey, I need to read capital. That's the kind of book you read with someone else. And you've read it before. Why don't you read it with me? And sure enough, we started reading it. We started recording it just in case, because that is the kind of book you read with other people, but you usually want it to be a group of more than two. And ever since we've released it, uh, we've had you guys listening with us. We've had a lot more than two, which is great. And the vision we've had since the beginning was that hopefully you're out there and whatever group, whatever organization, whatever party you're organizing in uh, with your reading group, your public education group, you're hopefully reading these books a with us and we could be another voice another source of input another way to help you know make sure that you soak in the work and understand the work and tie the work back to today and have all the context behind it um, let's say you know your group's not doing that let's say they're reading something shorter or something more directed at, at some current projects you're working on and you're reading this on your own hopefully we can be that reading group we can have that discussion we can give you that context we can give you another source of input another chance to just stop and review it and make sure you're soaking and understand Understanding the work. Um, and let's say, you know, it's not that. Let's say it's either a book like this where we're kind of more of an enhanced ebook or it's a book that we summarize a little more. Whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you because we want these works out there guiding your actions. And when you turn these works into action, that's a phenomenon called praxis. Uh, that's when you put theory into political action, into building things, into building towards that revolution. And of course, without theory, by definition, nothing can be praxis. And without the praxis, the theory is completely useless. They go hand in hand they are tied at the hip absolutely amen as always that being said this has been mark's madness pod my name is nathan my name's david and we will talk to you all next week bye, bye.